Uh, today's scripture reading takes place in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was not. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Hello, how you doing? Uh, my name's Andrew. If you don't know me, I'm one of the leaders here at Village. Um, we're on the third Sunday of Advent, Joy. Um, I don't know what you think of a joy. When I think of joy, I think of those Cadbury's adverts where they say pure joy. And it's the guy doing the... Yes, sir, I can... You know that one, Boogie? That one? That's what I think of, right? Keep singing. No, I'm not going to keep singing. Um, but I love this idea that we talked about. I just realized that the back pocket of my trousers is actually sewn shut. That's really, really unhelpful. Thanks, H&M, for that. Um, but I love this idea of joy that Rachel was telling us about this morning, this joy that isn't based on uh, a bar of chocolate, Although that can seem to bring us joy, can't it? Or joy that isn't based on uh, being in a good relationship when things are going really, really well. Or joy that isn't based on having the perfect Christmas. You know, we all have this idea that's instilled into us of what Christmas should be. Well, I do anyway, and it's a source of conflict in my marriage because it has to be a certain way. Uh, because I want a perfect Christmas. I want the Coca-Cola holidays are coming. I want the Home Alone house. I want the big Christmas tree. I want the, you know, the perfectly glazed turkey, all that kind of stuff. I want that because I have been told that that will bring me joy. But what happens when there's empty chairs around your table at Christmas? Hmm? What happens then? There's going to be empty chairs around our table this Christmas. What happens when you don't have the money to buy the perfect turkey or buy the perfect tree? What happens when it doesn't snow because we live on an island in the middle of the Atlantic? What happens then? The last couple of weeks we've been uh, 
looking at how God has uh, been working his plan for his people from the beginning of time. And we've seen, Lucas showed us in the first week, uh, this idea of hope, how the promises of God have been being fulfilled uh, from the, <clears throat> the very beginning of Scripture. Um, and, and how when we hope in these promises of God, we can have hope, not in the way that the world tells us to hope, like, I really hope I get a BB-8 remote control for Christmas, but a hope that means it's a done deal, it's a sure thing, it will happen. This is the hope that we have when we, when we hope in the promises of God. When God says it, it's as if it has already happened. And then last week we looked at um, how God is bringing peace to his people. These promises of God are being fulfilled. And when his kingdom comes in all its fullness, we will have peace that endures. And we sang about that this morning. And today, um, we get to uh, not only just one of my personal favorite passages of the Bible, but I think one of the most important passages of the Bible. You can't say that one's more important than the other, but in some ways, I, I want to say that. But we get to this point in history where it's a very particular point where, where the promises of God are starting to be fulfilled. Remember Lucas talked about this idea of a funnel, okay, where you have these promises and they're all getting more and more distilled towards this point. And the point is the person of Jesus. The point is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're so close to the point of the filter. Filter? You know why I said that? Uh, I'm thinking of a V60 in my head. So, uh, yeah, there you are. We're getting, to, we're getting to the coffee's about to start dripping through. It's the good stuff. And today we look at this passage and we see God entering his creation. God enters his creation. God becomes one of us in this act of cosmic humiliation. The creator becomes the creation. And so with this in mind, let's turn to our passage John 1, this book, John, it's, it's written by the Apostle John, who was Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends. He was his best friend. John uh, calls himself in, in his gospel the disciple that Jesus loved. And he's, he's writing this book about Jesus' life. And in the prologue of that, he's saying, everything that you're about to read about in the rest of this book, everything that I'm writing here, I'm gonna tell you who this person is in these 18 verses. In this short section, this is all you need to know about the, the person I'm telling you about. And as I was reading this passage over the, past of the, cor- the, 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 over the course of the past week or two, there's three words that really jumped out at me and I wanna focus on these three words this morning. And the three words are word, flesh, and dwell. Word, flesh, and dwell. I don't know about you, but for me, those words even conjure up something. The word is powerful, right? The words are powerful. Have you ever been hurt by words? Or have you been ever been encouraged to move into another phase of life because of words? Or have you ever been made to feel really good or really bad because of words? Word is powerful. Flesh. Flesh is tangible. Flesh is sensory. You can taste it. You can smell it. You can touch it. And dwell, it's abiding. When we think of a dwell, we think of something that's lasting. So I know some of you like taking notes, and that's great, and, and, but I, in some ways, don't worry about too much about that today, because this isn't meant to be an intellectual exercise. This is meant to be a visceral experience. I really, I really pray that the Lord stirs our emotions today, and really stirs our affections for him, and really causes us to wonder 
in our own depths at what he has done. I can't do this job of explaining the mystery of of God entering his creation, but the Holy Spirit can. So let's pray that he joins us this morning. Word, flesh, and dwell. I'm going to move this because it's too far away. And I've got keys and everything's falling over, but we'll get there. Don't worry. Lucas is like, do you want to borrow my iPad? I'm like, no, no, I prefer paper. I wish I had got the iPad. Oh, well. Anyone wants to buy me a Christmas present? Um, There's so much that we could look at in this passage. So much. And people have written books about these 18 verses. Um, But I'm going to focus on one verse, verse 14. And then we're going to look at three particular aspects of that. Verse 14 says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we're going to look at three particular aspects. The Word, who is He? Or what is He? Became flesh, what does that mean? And dwelt among us. What are the implications of that, and how should we respond? So firstly, the Word, who is He? As the song says, let's start at the beginning because it's a very good place to start. And that's exactly what John does. John starts at the beginning. Let's look at verse one. It should be up on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. And so the first thing that we see about the Word is that the Word was in the beginning with God. He is before all things. The Word is before anything else. And, and he makes it explicitly clear. He was in the beginning with God. And John is saying that the word has never not existed. The word has always been. There's never been a time without the word. Does that make sense? Now, if you were a, if you were a Jewish person reading this 2,000 years ago, you would instantly think, oh, he's quoting the very start of the scriptures here. And this is what John's doing. He's trying to grab his readers' attention. He's saying, he quotes from Genesis 1. He quotes Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John has drawn our attention to this one fact. This isn't a story just about one character in time. This is a story that's as old as time itself. And for us this morning, the Advent season and the Christmas story isn't about the baby Jesus. I've heard that word a lot. Finley's like, baby Jesus all the time. That's his thing. Baby Jesus. Uh, he was Joseph in the Nativity play, his first ever one, and I cried. So there you go. Um, he didn't really do it. He just sat there beside Mary and the baby Jesus. Um, but it was amazing. Amazing. I'm going to cry if I keep talking about it. Um, this story, like for us, this story isn't just about... This just isn't about the baby Jesus. It's not about one character in one particular time. This story goes way back further than that. This story goes back to the beginning of time itself. Um, Haley and I have been talking about uh, Finley's three, so he's still a bit too young, but we want to read him the Chronicles of Narnia because we were both read them as kids, and they're amazing books. But if in the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when they first go into Narnia, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you won't. Don't worry about it. It's nerdy, but it's also great. Um, Mr. Beaver says, I know, there you go. Uh, whatever. Leave me alone. Uh, it's amazing. Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is on the move. And at that moment, the kids don't know who Aslan is. They don't know who he is yet. But something changes within them. They start to feel more hopeful. They start to feel that something is beginning. They start to feel as if some good has come into the land. 
And this is what John is doing. He's saying, God is on the move in the beginning. John begins with creation to show us that what he's actually talking about is new creation. You see the, the, you see the connection there? Creation, new creation. And the important point that he's trying to make is this, and we need to understand this, is the gospel story is as old as time itself. There's never been a time when God wasn't working out his plans for you. There's never been a time. The point has always been Jesus. It, forget this idea that we messed up and God had to think of plan B to come and be with us. No, the plan was always that God would reveal himself to us through Jesus and he's been working it out since in the beginning. It's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. Jesus was always the point. Jesus was always the way that God intended to, to give us access and to make himself known to us. Um, kind of, uh, Tim and I go to the Arigal, like, I mean, every few months, not often at all, um, which is a pub over in the Armour Road, and there's an old man that drinks there, one of the regulars, and we've got to know him quite well. And he always says to me, oh, you're, you're like, the, theology, that's blasphemy. Because if God is infinite, then how can you know him? So it's, all of it's blasphemy. And what I've said to him, but he doesn't get it, is I'm said, but God has made himself known through Jesus. That's why it's not blasphemy. That's the point of it. And this is why, look at verse 18, this is why John says, no one has ever seen God, that's true. The only God the, the, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So in other words, the God who is at, God who is at God's side, and we'll get into that in a second, has made God known to us. The word has made God, know, has made God known to us. So, the Word has always been. Second thing about the Word we see is, He was God. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, you might ask the question, if He was in the beginning with God, then how can He also be God? Surely it can only be one or the other. I can be at the cinema with my wife, but I can't be my wife. That's weird. Well, Sometimes to get the meaning of what's going on, we have to do a little bit of language work. The Bible wasn't written in English, remember that. And sometimes we have to look at what the original language in its context to figure out what's going on. And the Greek word that's used for with here, in the beginning, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. That word that's used here in this context usually refers to a person with another person in intimate relationship, Okay. So, is John saying that God was in intimate relationship with God? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. You see, at this point, he's saying, remember in the context, he's saying, this book I'm writing, this is who it's about. And he's saying, these are the building blocks of the doctrine of what we call the Trinity, that God is three in one. And he's introducing this here. He's saying, God is three persons, yet one, not three parts. Not three parts. If he was, if he was three parts, he would have said, if he would have said the word was with God and the word was part of God. He doesn't say that. He says the word was God. God is not three parts. God is one, but he is three. It's a mystery. And what he's saying is the word in his very essence is God. And he's also in perfect communion and relationship with the Father. And John's beginning his book by saying, uh, saying these things to show that the book that you're actually reading here 
are actually the things of God. All these deeds that I'm about to show that Jesus did, they're actually the deeds of God himself. God is on the move. There's a new beginning coming here. This is what Advent's all about. The next thing we see about the word is, what, is that he was not made and that he made everything. Um, let's look at verse three. Uh, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, does that sound clumsy to you? Does that sound a bit awkward? Uh, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. That's really strange way to say this. But let's remember, John's a very clever man, firstly. And secondly, he was inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit when he was writing this, so we know that it's worded that way for a reason. And we need to ask God to reveal to us the reason. And I think the reason that he's wording it this way is very simple. He wants to show us that, that the word was not made, okay? There can be no ambiguity. God did not, at some point before the beginning, make the word so that he could be God-like or with God and, and be God. The word was not made. He could have worded it other ways, but he puts it this way. The word is outside, if you look at the wording, the word is outside of the category of all the things that were made. So the word was not made, and that's really important. That's really important, especially at this time of year, because at this time of year, we focus on the humanity of Jesus, the baby Jesus coming into the world. And I think that that's good and right that we should do that. But we need to remember that the word was not made. In verse 14, we see that the word is the son of God. You follow along there, the word was, is the son of God. And in verse 17, we see that the son of God is Jesus Christ. So how does this all fit together? The word has always been, and yet Jesus was born from, of Mary, and they're the same person? How can someone always be, but yet be born and be the same thing? But John is saying, Yes, they are the same thing. And here's what's going on. You see, the Son of God is not the product of conception with Mary. That's not what's happening here. It's why we can't call Mary the mother of God. We can't, because she's not the mother of God. She's the mother she gave birth to and raised, and did a cracking job by all accounts, of raising the person of Jesus. And we're very, very thankful for her. But she's not the mother of God. You see, she gave birth to Jesus, but the word has always been. The word has been around since the beginning. So what's going on? Through Mary, the eternal word, the son of God, became the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? His name was Jesus, which means he shall save his people from their sins. And Christ is just another word for Messiah the promised one, the chosen one. Jesus was and remains still the physical embodiment of God. All that God is, is in the person of Jesus. The Father always had this perfect image of himself. Does that make sense? So the eternal word became the person of Jesus Christ when God entered his creation. Don Carson, who's just a, a great mind, great thinker, uh, wears a lot of beige, as we were talking about earlier. Um, nothing wrong with that. Um, he says this, the son of God was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history so that the glory and grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. 
In other words, the Word is the Son of God, and the Son of God became the person called Jesus. Does that make sense? So the Word always has been, but the Word entered His creation through Mary and became the person of Jesus. And we're going to see why as we move on. And the final thing then that we see from here about the Word is that the Word is life and light. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Why, why did John use these particular words, life and light? What's so, what's so important about those? Well, you know, as we saw before, he's a smart guy, and the Holy Spirit is actually working through him to write these things, so we know that it's, he does it for a reason. And I think that John is, is addressing two particular problems that human beings have, that the human race have. I think that the problems that all other problems that humans have stem from. I think it's the, excuse me, I think it's the source of all brokenness in the world that John is getting to. And it's this, that, that human beings are spiritually dead and spiritually blind. This is what he's talking about. We're spiritually dead and we're spiritually blind. We need life to come alive and we need light to see. Paul, writing in Ephesians 2, talking about people who aren't yet Christians, says, uh, or people who before they were Christians said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And the same thing in Colossians 2, he says, you were dead in your transgressions. See, John is writing about the human condition here, and he's linking Jesus to it. He's saying, here's a human condition, and here's Jesus. Here's the word entering. Here's life and light coming into the world. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And John's also doing this thing again where he's referring to the promises of God to show that, that God is working his purposes through, uh, through the whole scriptures and through Jesus, all these promises are coming, through, coming, coming true. One of the readings we'll read tonight is from Isaiah 9. And in verse two it says this, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light John's audience back then would instantly have known what he was talking about. He's talking about, oh, Isaiah said, these people walk in darkness uh, and they have seen a great light. And here's the word coming into the world and he is life and light. John's saying here, we're spiritually dead and spiritually blind and the word, the son of God, the person of Jesus Christ is the solution to both these problems. He's the life you need. He's the light you need. We're spiritually dead and therefore spiritually blind. And only Jesus can be the answer to those problems. And later on, a couple of chapters over in chapter three, um, Jesus is chatting to this religious leader of the time, a guy called Nicodemus. Uh, don't get many, you know a biblical name's really popular? Don't get many like little Nicodemuses running around, do you? That'd be kind of cool. Well, that's a good idea. I'll bear that in mind. Uh, but he says this, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So first Jesus gives life, unless you are born again, gives life, he cannot see, he gives light. The life that we receive in Jesus Christ becomes our light. The ability to see spiritual reality, we're blinded. Does that make sense? But also, 
It's not just that he is the light to see spiritual reality. He is the light himself. It's not just like Jesus turns on a light bulb so that we can see these things going on. He is the light bulb himself. He is the source of the light. And this is important because when we're unbelievers, right? If you're not a Christian or remember back to when you weren't a Christian, what we're blind to is the truth and beauty and glory of Jesus. Isn't that right? So when John says, in him was the life and light, in him was the life and that life was the light of men, he means that Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, is both the power to see spiritual glory and the glory that we see when our eyes are opened. That's why verse 14, one of the just most incredible truths in the whole Bible, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. We've seen his glory. And this is what Jesus prayed for later on. He prayed for his people in John 17, just before he died, and he said this, Father, I desire that they also, those whom you have given me, may be with me where I am and see my glory. And that's why Jesus said, I am the light of the world, in John 8. And he goes on, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John's introducing his biography of Jesus, his, his good news of Jesus, and he's saying that he, the eternal word, was not made. He is the fulfillment of God's only plan, all the promises for his created people. And he is, the, he is the life needed to give life to the spiritually dead, and he is the light needed to give sight to the spiritually blind. You see, baby Jesus isn't the, the point of our story. He's not. We live post-resurrection. We live after the resurrection of Jesus. The culmination of Advent for us isn't the baby Jesus. It was never the culmination of Advent. Advent culminates with the eternal, creating, life-giving, light-bringing, victorious Jesus who reigns in victory forevermore. Thought that would have got an amen, to be honest. Come on. This is amazing stuff, though. Amazing stuff. This is who our focus needs to be on. We don't just switch our focus at Christmas. Our focus is always on the creating Jesus, the life-bringing Jesus, the light-giving Jesus. Word, flesh, dwell. So the word became flesh. What does became flesh mean? Well, let's look at this uh, phrase. This, is, this section's a bit shorter, so we're okay. Let's look at this phrase, the word became flesh. Well, if something became something, it obviously wasn't the thing that it became before it became it, right? You can't, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't flesh before and then became flesh. So what John is implying is that the word wasn't always flesh. The word, there was a time when the word was not flesh. The son of God didn't always have a, a physical body, he wasn't flesh to begin with. He was creator. He was spirit. He didn't have bodily form. But becoming flesh, as we've seen, the word becomes the person of Jesus. He takes on flesh. He enters his creation. The creator God becomes his creation. That's why I called it earlier this act of cosmic humiliation. Look at verses 10 and 11. Oh, here. 
the beginning of verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11, he was in the world and he came to his own. This is huge. It's going to be huge. Oh, I can't believe I did that. I feel dirty. Horrible. Oh, man. Uh, he was in the world and he, he, came, to the, he, he came to his own. Um, it's huge for us because in all other world religions, in all other religions, we have, you have this premise of, of, of trying to achieve either God-like status for yourself or trying to gain access to your, to, to your God, to your deity. You're trying to, to get there. But for us, we don't have that. For us, we have God stooping low to become like us. God stoops, I love this idea, God stoops low to come to us. He gets on his knees, he gets down in the dirt. Can you imagine never having smelt anything and then smelling things? I'm not saying that's what Jesus did, but he gets into the mire with us. Uh, Augustine, one of the church fathers, about 1,700 years ago, he said this, he was created by a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in a manger in wordless infancy. He, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. Do you not wish Augustine was preaching this morning? <laughs> I do. God stooping low to become like us. God wanted you and he took the ultimate step of humiliation to find you. That's good news. Do you feel like you're searching for God this morning? Maybe some of you are. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you have been a Christian for years and you feel like God's slipping away. Do you feel like you're saying, God, where are you? Last week we read Psalm 89, or the week before, I can't remember, we read Psalm 89, and God, where are you? How long, God? Do you feel like you're searching for God? All you have to do is stop, turn around, and you'll find that God has been chasing you the whole time. He's not far from us. He became near to us. He entered into the mess to be near to us. The fullness of the word all the things we looked at in the word that he wasn't made. He was God. He was in the beginning. He is life and light. He's the one that's been foretold since the beginning of time. All of that in the most helpful or most uh, helpless and vulnerable creature, this wee tiny baby. That's how much he wanted you. That's how much he wants us. He chases after us this much. We're gonna, afterwards, we're going to sing this song and the verse of this hymn that says, the king of kings lay thus in lowly manger. In all our trials, born to be our friend, he knows your need. To our weakness, he is no stranger. Behold your king, before him lowly bend. That's the kind of king we have. We don't have a king that's sitting in a throne room surrounded by guards trying to keep himself separate from, from, from his people and their problems. Our king isn't a dictator separating himself from us and lording over us. Our king entered our situation so that he could bring us into his splendor. That's amazing. Amazing. All the this, is, this is all part of the promises of God being fulfilled. And I want to hurry it along here. Again, John drawing our attention back to the Old Testament promises 
He's talking, the prophet Isaiah, again, uh, time and time again, foretold of Emmanuel, which means God with us. And, and this is John saying, God is coming to be with us. God is with us. God is fulfilling his promises to come into the world and to rescue his people and, and to bring them back to death and to give them sight. We're spiritually dead and we walk in darkness because we've rejected God and God is light and life. And so we need to be brought back to God. And this is the reason why the word became flesh. In our fallen state of rejecting God, separated from him because of our own rebellion, we need someone that can bridge that gap. We need someone that can, can bridge that gap between us and God. And the, that person is and can only be the word dwelling in flesh. Because in the person we've seen, in the person of Jesus, we've seen that God and human are fully and equally present. God and man equally existing in the person of Jesus. And so he could fulfill a role that we could never fulfill ourselves. We can't claw our way to nirvana. We can't make ourselves good enough so that God will think that we're, uh, uh, you know, like him? What do I have to offer? This is why the writer of uh, the book of Hebrews says in chapter four, and, and I read this at the start of our worship last week, he, said, he says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, word became flesh. That's my insertion, that phrase in there. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that awesome? What's he saying there? He's saying, he's saying our representative came from Jesus. The word became, or came from heaven. The word became flesh. God entered his creation. And so he knows your weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses. He was weak as we are, yet he remained strong. And he was tempted like us in every respect, yet he never gave in to temptation. And so only through him can we draw near to God with confidence and receive mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. This is Emmanuel. This is word becoming flesh. This is what this means. Word, flesh, dwell. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want to ask this question, uh, how should we respond to this? And this is where we'll finish today. Firstly, what does this idea of dwell mean? What does this mean? Like the, the, the uh, word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, have you ever seen those Airbnb ads? You know the ones that's like, uh, don't just go to Paris. Don't just visit Paris. Don't just, and it's like, definitely don't do Paris. Live in Paris. It's kind of like that idea. I mean, kind of. I don't, know, I don't know if they saw what they were doing when they said that, but it is. The word didn't become flesh just for a wee while. He didn't just come on holiday. Um, and he took up residence. A better translation of, of dwelt here is took up residence. The word became flesh and, and took up residence among us. 
The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So the word that's used here in the Greek, we're doing that word study again. It's really important to do that from time to time. The word used here in this context refers to settling down permanently in one place. You see, the Word didn't become flesh and then stop being flesh. No. The Word became flesh was born in flesh, grew up in flesh, offered himself up in sacrifice and died in flesh, rose again bodily in flesh and ascended to the Father's side in the flesh and he will return again in the flesh. God doesn't just leave us to our own devices. He comes in flesh and he stays with us in flesh and he'll be in bodily forevermore and someday we will join him in glorious bodily form forevermore. He doesn't just leave us. So do you see what this means? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It means that the word became flesh, became the very dwelling place of God. Jesus is the very dwelling place of God among his people. Unbelievable. It's, yeah, it's, uh, I was reading a little devotional about Advent this week and, and the author. I'm not gonna say who it is because I read this guy a lot and then people slag me off for having a very narrow kind of readership. But anyway, I don't. Um, but he said, it's breathtaking. And it just took my breath there now. So how should we respond to this? I think there's two, and I'm in the last five minutes here. There's two responses we see in this passage. Um, we see don't know him and don't receive him. And we also see receive him and believe in his name. First, let's look at don't receive him. Verses 10 and 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Again, John's showing here that there's more prophecy about Jesus being fulfilled. One such place is Psalm 118. That Speaking of Jesus, the, the psalmist says, um, he is the stone that the builders rejected and he has become the cornerstone. See, it was always foretold that people would reject Jesus. And I think, I think we can all agree on the fact, atheist, Christian, non-Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever, people reject Jesus. I think that's something we can all agree on and still reject Jesus. 2,000 years ago, they, they, they killed him because they rejected him. And little did they know that they were just fulfilling God's plan. So, you know, joke's on them. The world still rejects Jesus. And what are the results? Look around. The results are that if, if you're spiritually dead and you reject the one, you don't receive the one who is spiritual life, then you'll just stay spiritually dead. And if you're spiritually blind and you don't receive the one who can bring spiritual light, then you're just gonna stay blind. Is that you? Is that me? I don't want anyone to ever think that I'm saying things to you that I'm not saying to myself, by the way. I was chatting a friend uh, this week and I said, oh, I'm really excited about you know, preaching this Sunday. And he said, uh, preachers are always way more excited about preaching than the listeners are. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but that, it is. Like, I want you to know that this is deeply affecting me. If you reject the one who brings spiritual life, you're just gonna stay spiritually dead. If you reject the one who, who is spiritual light, you're just gonna stay spiritually blind. But, thankfully, John gives us an alternative. Let's look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So if you receive Christ for who he is, you become a child of God. This is the purpose of the word dwelling and the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, that we could become the children of God. Let's compare verses 14 and verse 12. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14. But look what's happening in verse 12. He gave, uh, those who believe in him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. And this is my main point this morning. So listen to this. The son of God became flesh so that flesh could become sons of God. Isn't that awesome? The son of God became flesh so that flesh could become sons of God. And I'm using sons there not because it only applies to meals, but just because it's son and sons, you know what I'm doing. The Son of God became flesh so that, so that we could become the children of God. You've all heard of the royal engagement this week, or last week, wherever it was. I don't, really, I don't know the girl's name. I think she's called Megan. Megan, someone. Megan Merkel? Huh? Markle? Not to be confused with the German Chancellor. Okay. That'd be weird. <laughs> Hello? No. No. <laughs> um... Do you think last Christmas, like, Meghan Markle, or whatever her name is, could just, like, walk into, you know, the, the Queen's dining room and be like, all right, let's have Christmas dinner? No, she was just, like, some kind of, well, she wasn't a subject because she was American and they're rebels to her, but, um, <laughs> so she definitely couldn't do that. But this year, she's having dinner at Buckingham Palace with the Queen, and what has changed? What's changed? She now bears the mark of being part of the family. She has this ring in her finger that says, I am part of the family, and now she can go and watch the Queen's speech with the Queen on TV after dinner. I hope, I please tell me that the Queen does that. That'd be awesome. I would if it was me. And this is, what, this is what it's like for us. When we receive the Son, when we receive the Word became flesh, we receive all the benefits that come along with that, including being part of the family of God when we receive Jesus for who he really is. And, and he says, we receive, uh, uh, but, all to, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, and he includes that phrase, who believed in his name, because to receive Jesus, the word became flesh, the son of God, for who he is, means to believe in his name. That's why he puts that in there. So when we receive Jesus for who he is, we become a child of God and we receive everything that goes along with that. Now, I want to finish on this. What goes along, what is everything that goes along with that? Look at verse, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of what? Full of grace and truth. And I think... I'm not gonna spend time on this. I think that the truth relates to spiritual life. We need the truth to come from death to life. And I think that the grace refers to spiritual light because we see Jesus for who he is and we receive himself. And this is why John says in, in verse 16, we have on the slide, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. If there's one thing, if there's one thing that marks um, Lucas's impact on me individually, and hopefully on you guys too, it's uh, teaching me about grace. Uh, because these words, grace upon grace, are never far from his lips. 
He always says grace upon grace. Isn't that a great lesson for me to have and for us to have? From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Uh, Paul in Colossians 2 said, says when he's talking about Jesus, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, the fullness of Jesus is the fullness of God. So his grace can be nothing but unending because God in his fullness has given us his fullness through the Son. Sometimes I think it's funny that we sing that song, Your Grace is Enough. It's an amazing song, and, and I, I, I like it, and I think that we are idiots, so we need to be reminded of that from time to time. But of course the grace of God is enough. It's unending. This is why John uses the symbolism of grace upon grace. It's, it's like waves of grace that just keep coming and coming. It's like going to Port Church Strand and stand on the beach. I could go there every day for the, and, and stand there for the rest of my life, and those waves will just keep coming. I can't do anything to stop them. Just keep coming. And that's what God's grace is like when you receive Jesus, when you receive uh, word became flesh, you receive that grace upon grace upon grace. And this is what the Advent message is about. And this is what the story of Christmas is all about. That's what was happening in the manger. Or as Finley says, the box of hay. (laughs) And so there you go. Jesus was born in a box of hay. The fullness of God in a tiny baby. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of the great, with these great preachers, he says this, and you'll wish he was preaching this morning after I read it. He says, infinite yet infant. Eternal yet born of a woman. Almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast. Supporting the universe, yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms. King of angels, and yet the reputed son of Joseph. Heir of all things, and yet a carpenter's despised son. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And why? Also that we could become the children of God and receive grace upon grace. So when we talk about joy this morning, and we should... Let this be the source of our joy. This should be the source of our joy. Joy that's unwavering. Joy that's unchanging because it's based on the one who is unchanging. Joy that's unshakable because it's based on the one who is unshakable. Joy that in the midst of your deepest grief and hardest trials, or in the midst of your highest highs and and greatest achievements and celebrations, joy that says, those things don't matter because it is well with my soul. That's what Christmas means. Don't look for joy in the Christmas that the world tells you you should have. Don't look for joy in the relationships that the world tells you you should have. Don't look for joy in the amount of money the world tells you you should have. Look for joy in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no perfect Christmas. There's always empty chairs. There's never enough money. There's always things going on that we have to come back to on January 1st. but receive this joy, receive Jesus. And if you're not a Christian this morning, that's especially my invitation to you, like receive Jesus. This is, this is available for you. You can have this joy that is unwavering. And remember that in the manger, God is entering his creation because he's chasing you down. He entered the muck and the mire and the dirt and the grime of his creation because he wanted you. 
Let our joy come from grace upon grace that's found in him, word, flesh, and dwell. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go back into worship. Uh, Father, your grace is enough more than I need. Lord, we thank you that um, you entered your creation, you humbled yourself, and somehow the words thank you don't seem to, to be enough, don't seem to, don't seem to just quite cut it. But this amazing gift of your cosmic humiliation that allowed us to become part of your family. Father, I pray that no matter what the next week and a bit holds for us over the Christmas holidays, Father, that, that we wouldn't be concerned about Christmas, that we would be concerned about what is behind Christmas. Father, we'd be concerned about the state of our soul. Father, would we put our joy upon you and receive your grace upon grace? Thank you, Lord, that we're in your family. Thank you, that Jesus, that you give us the right to become children of God. Lord, we thank you. We want to enjoy our status as children of God. We want to enjoy the fact that we're in your family. And Lord, may that be where our joy comes from um, this morning and, and over the holidays and for the rest of our lives. And let us keep reminding each other of these things. Lord, it's for your glory and for your fame. Amen.